Uh, good morning, Saltbox virtual community. We're so glad that you joined with us this morning. And if you happen to be visiting with us for the first time, I want to extend a welcome to you as, as well. My name is Steve uh, Mattis. I'm one of the uh, elders here at Saltbox Community Church. And um, Pastor Michael, who is my son, um, asked me if I would share this morning a message which, well, it's called Lessons uh, Learned from a Life of Ministry. And when he first asked me to share around this theme, you know, I listed the top 50 things <laughs> or 60 things or 100 things, and realizing that that could never uh, happen, I have listed a few things lessons that I've learned that I want to share with you this morning. But in order to set the context for doing so, I want to read, if I may, a scripture from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, beginning at verse 26 and going through verse 29. And when I read this, I want you to be listening for a word, the word calling or called uh, or the word chosen. Um, 1 Corinthians 1.26, the Apostle Paul writes, Consider your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, that is, men or women of high standing or high birth, are called. But rather, God has chosen the foolish things, the weak things, the insignificant things, the things that are despised. Yes, God has chosen the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are, in order that no flesh would glory or boast in God's presence. Lord, enable us to understand this morning some of these life lessons and apply them in our lives in the name of Jesus. Amen. The reason I began with that particular text this morning is that, is, well, it's a humbling text. Paul says to each one of those of us who are in Christ, consider your calling, consider how and why God chose you. And I'd like to go back and just sort of self-disclose, if I may, for just a moment about my own life prior to coming into Jesus. And uh, I would say that, well, I was sort of limped through high school. I loved to party rather than study. <laughs> so I would say I'm a, I was uneducated. I was foolish, that is, doing things that were just foolhardy. I was, well, without detail, immoral, at times dishonest, very self-centered, and even prideful. And of course, as you can imagine, if that were the case, the list could go on and odd, odd infinitum. But I share that with you this morning simply to say that God actually chooses 
those things that are foolish and weak and insignificant and despised in order that when we come to him, we're not resting or trusting in ourselves rather than in his sufficiency, in his grace, in his presence in our lives. Paul goes on and he continues through that verse and he says, but now in him, or of him that is, of God, of him you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. He has become for us righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And again, the purpose is, as it is written, let him who boasts or glory boast only in the Lord. You know, a lot of people spend an awful lot of their time in life trying to be something. Sometimes be something that they're not. They're trying to prove who they are to other people. Sometimes you're trying to prove things to your parents, <laughs> uh, trying to prove things even to yourself. But you see this, this text, and I'll slide into my first point here in just a moment. This text actually erodes all of those things that we can place our confidence in. And he says that, well, basically, in another text, 2 Corinthians uh, 4, 7, he says that we now have this treasure. What treasure? The treasure of King Jesus living by the Spirit in the hearts of us who are simply earthen vessels. Another translation says we have this treasure in, in jars of clay. You see, that's really who we are. When we recognize that we bring nothing to God, in spite of how moral you may have been or how immoral some have been or how strong you think you are or weak you perceive yourself, the reality is we can entrust nothing but Jesus for his life. He takes the things that are foolish, the things that are weak, the things that are insignificant and despised, even the things that are not God has chosen, the scripture says, in order to bring to nothing those things that are so that you and I would not boast in ourselves, in our accomplishments. Rather, we would allow Jesus to be our wisdom. We would allow him to be our righteousness. We would allow him to be the manifestation of sanctification and even our redemption so that we would not rest in our own strength, but in his. The first point that I want to share in the First lesson that I would highlight this morning, lesson learned from a life of ministry, almost 50 years as a Christian. <laughs> Can you believe that? Almost 40 years in full-time ministry. And I think this most substantial lesson is that God supplements our humanity in all of its brokenness with his divinity. In other words, it is Christ's life. In Colossians 3, verse 4, it says that Christ is your life. Paul says on another occasion that I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ who now lives in me. And this life then that I now live, I live by faith or the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, God actually supplements our humanity with his divinity. That doesn't mean he 
He uh, neutralizes it. It doesn't mean that he um, makes it go away. It, our humanity is still ever present with us, but he enjoins, he supplements his divinity. The life of God himself moves into our spirit man at a new birth, and that is what then creates this uh, new life that he has given to us. He covers my sin. He exchanges my life for his life. He indwells my life with his spirit. You see, God supplements our humanity, not eradicating our humanity, but showing himself stronger than it, regardless of your perceived strengths or your perceived weakness. It is, in fact, the life of God now living in us that makes all of the difference in the world. You see, if we're jars of clay, if we're earthen vessels, another way to say it is that we're just an old cup. <laughs> and in fact, if you read Genesis, uh, the first couple of chapters, you'll find that God actually created man and woman in his image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. Now, what did God see when he looked at that man and that woman? He saw himself, the image of God, and it was good. But as you know, as the story unwinds about Genesis chapter 3, there was a great fall that we call it, and there was sin that entered in, and man, according to the promise of God, and, and woman, died. Now, you know they didn't physically die, but the life of God that was in them was extracted from them, and they were then living life in their own strength, in their own resources. And I suspect, if truth be known, there are some of us this morning who call ourselves Christian, but in fact, we're living life trusting in ourselves more so than Jesus, trusting in our resources more than his resources. And see, in that sense, we could be found boasting in him. You see, God created us for the creator. He created us for the purpose of containing his presence, like a cup holds water, uh, like fuel for, the, uh, for a car. Uh, you and I can't run without the presence of God, the fuel of God in our lives. It is his presence that he is after, and God supplements our humanity by his divinity and that is a humbling experience when we truly understand it, that it's nothing we bring to the table, it's all about God. You see, there was a saying some years ago, the first time I heard it, and it goes something like, it's not about me. And you know, it really isn't about me, nor is it really about you. It's about Christ in you who is the hope of glory. In spite of our foolishness, our weakness, our insignificance, even being despised, Jesus has become to us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption so that what God is interested in for my life and for yours is that we would live our lives on the earth now being filled unto overflowing with the presence of God in our life so that every place we go, to the store, in recreation, or to the beach, or anywhere else, God is going with us, and he is interested in representing his life through us, through what we say, 
through our attitudes, and through our actions. God supplements our humanity with his divinity. And any old cup will do. The second lesson that I remember from a life of ministry, and that is Jesus is the essential link between you and what makes you normal and you and your life in eternity. Now, it might seem a little complicated, but Jesus is the essential link between you and what is normal and that which is eternal. You see, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, and Paul said, of whom I am chief. Now, why do you think Paul, the Apostle Paul, said of sinners he was chief? He was simply in touch with the fact that from God's perspective, in spite of his own accomplishments, he was one of those foolish things, weak things, insignificant things, despised things, and now he was a man who was filled with the wisdom of God, the righteous of God, sanctified by the presence of God and redeemed by him. You see, the most godly person is not the one who thinks they have no sin. In fact, 1 John says, if we say we have no sin, we lie, (laughs) and the truth is not in us. Rather, it is the person who recognizes their immense need for Jesus in their life, need for his deliverance, for their, to be their savior, for Jesus' presence in their life. You see, what makes a person normal isn't our accomplishments or what we think we have done in this life. What makes a person normal is, in fact, the presence of God. We were made for normalcy, like a car is made to run on gasoline. And now in the day of electric cars, of course, some cars are made to run on electricity. Either way, it's the power of the internal combustion engine or the power of the electricity that actually moves the car, and so it is with you and me. It is the presence of God in our lives that makes us normal. It's the presence of God in our life that makes us not only normal, but sets us on a path and assures our life in eternity. Jesus is the essential link between normalcy and myself and eternity in myself. The presence of Jesus is what makes us normal. It's the creator living out his presence inside the creature, made normal and made eternal. For God so loved the world, the scripture says, that he gave his only begotten son so that whosoever believes on him would never perish, but rather have eternal life. You see, restored to normalcy by the presence of God, set and sealed for eternity by the person in the presence of God. First lesson, God supplements our humanity with his divinity. Secondly, Jesus is the essential link between what is normal and what is eternal. And thirdly, Um, offenses are sure to come. I learned this early on in my ministry, actually learned it early on in my own life, that not only was I new and Jesus was living in me, but I still had the capacity to be offensive, to say foolish things, to do unwise things. But Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18, verse uh, 7, that 
offenses were sure to come. Now, the question is, um, what do we do when we are offended? You know, the scriptures are actually a roadmap for those who are living the life of the Spirit. And when you're offended, the scripture is very clear about what to do. You see, uh, what are offenses? Well, offenses are really stumbling stones. They're places where I feel that I've been maybe mistreated or accused by someone else or slandered or neglected or rejected or I feel hurt or I do any of those things to other people. Those are stumbling stones or offenses. But what do we do when we're offended is the question and there's four levels to that answer. The scripture says in Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, that we should go and tell them, the offending person, their fault between you and him alone. How much in our life uh, could be uh, averted and healed quickly if we would simply go and be truthful and honest with another person when we are hurt? But so often we withdraw, we isolate, and we move away from the relationship. So what do we do when we're offended? The first thing is the what. We go immediately and share with them their fault seeking to be reconciled. Well, the second level of that, B if you will, is how do we go? Because you know you can go and be completely right but dead wrong in how you go. And well, God gives us um, an example of that as well. He says in Matthew chapter seven, um, how to go, and that is uh, when you go to consider the speck that's in your brother or sister's eye, consider the log that is in your own. Now do you see what that does? If you're going to point out a fault in the life of another person, the way you go is to recognize that not only do you have the same speck, but it's probably even a larger speck. Jesus called it a log. Well, the point is that there is simply um, a leveling work that happens when we're, when we're honest and stand at the foot of the cross. How we go, we consider the log. That means a life of humility. It means an attitude of gentleness. It means considering the, your own log before you help your brother or sister with their speck. You see, it's about attitude. It's about humility, gentleness, loving that other person. So what do you do? You go, you tell them their fault. How you go? You go gently and uh, with uh, humility. And the when to go in Matthew chapter 5, verse 23 and 24, when do you go? And it's, the answer is at first remembrance, when you bring your gift to the altar. Anytime you approach the presence of God and there remember that someone has something against you, right there, right then, leave your gift at the altar and go and seek to be reconciled with your brother or with your sister. What is to go and tell them their fault? How? With humility and gentleness. When? At first remembrance. Remembering that Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 and following, deal with it quickly. In other words, don't let the sun go down on your, on your wrath or on your anger. Because, well, why then is number four, what go, how, considering your log and your speck, when, immediately, when you remember it, 
And fourthly, why? Because offenses will always create something in your life. And Hebrews chapter 12 calls them roots of bitterness. Pastor Michael touched on this a couple of weeks ago about roots of bitterness. I'm picking up here. But little roots of bitterness. When I've been offended and when I don't go and when I don't speak to be reconciled, it becomes a little root of bitterness, but it grows into a stronghold. And a stronghold is simply a network of thinking in our minds that keep us in the hold of that which is strong. And strongholds always lead to defilement in your life, and Hebrews 12, 15 says, in the lives of a whole lot of other people. So lesson number three, if number one was God supplements our humanity, our weakness, our foolishness, our insignificance with his divinity, Jesus then, secondly, is the essential link between what is normal, living a life in his presence, and connecting us to eternity. But thirdly, offenses are sure to come. You see, offenses will happen to us, but go gently in humility, remembering the log that is in your own eye, remembering that we're really a jar of clay. We're an earthen vessel, and we can only represent the presence of God and allow him to come through this cracked vessel, which leads really to lesson that I've learned, number four, early on in my own life. I like to consider myself to be a man of grace. Why is that? Because I need so much grace. And lesson number four that I've learned in a life of ministry is that grace is always sufficient. Grace is always abundant. Uh, Grace is uh, always there, and grace must be extended to other people. You see, in Romans chapter 5, Paul says this about this thing called sin. And he says, where sin abounds. What does that mean for us? Well, when sin sort of gets out of control, you know what We all understand those kinds of times when we get sucked into something or we get trapped by something or we stumble into something, but you're in it. But Paul says where sin abounds, the good news is that grace superabounds even more. Uh, Where sin abounds, grace does more abound. You see, once you've received the grace of God, What Paul was saying here is that you've been, uh, uh, once you receive grace, you have been called to live a life of grace. You've been equipped by that grace, and you are now obligated to extend that grace to other people. You can't experience grace and receive grace and not give grace away. Let me give you an example of that. Peter you remember, came to Jesus and he said, how often shall my brother sin against me? Seven times? Maybe Jesus chuckled, we don't know. Maybe he shook his head. But he said, no, Peter, not seven times, but 70 times seven. Now, what I don't think is that Jesus is simply saying you do it 490 times. I think what Jesus was saying is that to receive grace, 
obligates you to share grace with other people. Now, how, how do we know that? The whole second half of chapter 18 of Matthew's gospel goes on. Um, how many times shall I forgive? Seven? No, 70 times seven. Because Jesus then told a parable, the kingdom of God is like a servant who the king sought to reckon his account. And one servant was brought to him that owed this king a massive debt that he could never pay. And the servant simply implored the king, will you forgive me? And the king was moved by compassion and he forgave that enormous debt. Now the servant who was forgiven the massive debt in the course of his life finds someone who owed him a very small, by comparison, debt. Let's call it a $7 debt. And the servant was, the first servant was forgiven millions of dollars. And he finds someone who owed him seven bucks. And the scripture says that he grabbed him by the throat and said, pay what you owe. Jesus had some unkind words for that servant. And you see, the point is that the kingdom of God is like this servant who was forgiven this massive debt, and we are then obligated to take the resources of heaven that has forgiven us by the sufficiency of grace, the abundance of grace, and extend grace to other people even when they don't deserve it. And by the way, did you or I deserve God's grace? That's what makes grace so absolutely amazing. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like you and like me. You see, we were once lost, but now we're found. We were blind, but now we see. And now Jesus says there is no excuse for going out and living your life and finding people who in petty fashion uh, sin against you and you being unforgiving or not extending grace. Grace is sufficient, it is abundant, and grace must be extended to all who need it. You have been forgiven an unimaginable debt. If you're a Christian today, if you've come to a place, if, if God rather has brought you to a place where you have surrendered the castle of your heart to the King of Kings, if you've given over your life, if you've surrendered to Jesus, then you have received his unmerited favor, his gift of grace and forgiveness. And now, brothers and sisters, it is your responsibility to let Jesus so live his life in your kingdom normalcy that everywhere you go, you simply are an exposition of what he has written on your heart. You give people grace when they don't merit it, when they're foolish and hurt you, when they accuse you, when they slander you, all those things that we often have done ourselves. And you simply, as you are enabled by the Spirit to forgive them and extend grace to them as well. You see, you can no longer find someone who owes you a small amount and choose not to extend grace. 
or not to forgive them. Why? Grace is sufficient, it is abundant, and it must be extended to everybody that you meet if you're gonna walk as a man or a woman in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is like a servant who has forgiven a massive debt. And when he finds someone who owed him a small debt, he simply forgave that servant and moved on in life. God supplements our humanity with his divinity. Jesus is the essential link between what makes you normal and eternal life. And offenses are sure to come in this life, so go immediately, go soon, go in contrition and humility and gentleness at first remembrance, and remember that offenses always cause roots of bitterness, but grace is always sufficient. One last lesson that I would underscore here as we close, and that is that love really matters. You know, black lives matter, they say. Blue lives matter, they say. But I would say to you that all lives matter. And more importantly than that, love matters because it is what love, it is love in your heart that will cause you to be able to walk as a man or woman in the kingdom and love people who are politically different (laughs) or who are racially different or who are socially, economically different from you. That's the way God made us to be. And as we receive his grace and we receive his forgiveness and his love and he hooks us and links us to eternity and we begin to walk as a normal Christian filled with the presence of God, we have the resources of God in us to begin to do and to act in ways that are commensurate with God's life in us. 1 Corinthians 13 Paul says, love is the greatest thing. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, you know the scripture. Now abide these three, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. In 1 John 1, chapter four, verse eight, it simply says, God is love. John chapter four says, God is spirit. 1 John 4 is, is God is love. And when you love another person, you are acting out of the nature and the character of God himself who has made you normal by moving into your emptiness from outside, coming to live his life in you by the Spirit. And now the Spirit of God is enabled to love you. You say, I, don't, I have a hard time loving other people. Well, join the club. So do I. But it's not about you. It's about the life of God in you. Get over yourself and allow God to love some people through you who are different from you, who make you angry, who make you mad. You see, the last thing I'll share this morning in this thing called love matters. Love is the greatest thing. Love is what we all need and what we must give away is that love always covers a multitude of sin. That's sort of where we started, if you will remember. Where sin abounds, grace does more abound. And here, 1 Peter 4, 8 says, love fervently because love covers a multitude of sins. Wouldn't it be amazing if you and I would commit in our heart of hearts 
to allow Jesus, who is living his life in us and wants to live his life through us, to be allowed to love other people the way he wants to love them with our mouth, with our actions, with our gestures. That's probably one of the reasons I love the Yellow Truck Coffee Company. You give a, by analogy, a cup of cold water to another person. You give a cup of hot coffee to an individual who's not expecting it. By the way, we had them in our neighborhood about three weeks ago, and all it was was a love fest. I put on our little website, hey, there's no charge and there's, there's no condition. Just come and receive this um, amazing cup of coffee just because we want to do something in these challenging times for people who, who need it. You know, that is transformational when you take a little thing like a cup of coffee or a cup of cold water or a dozen cookies or simply a gesture of love and smile at another person. People are hungering and dying for that. That's how we share Jesus with the masses. We share Jesus with the one. We share Jesus by loving those who have a need. We share Jesus by allowing him to love other people through us. Would you come? Let's sing, uh, close with another song and while Susie's coming, would you spend just a moment reflecting on what are the resources that you're calling upon in your life to live the Christian life? Are you still trying hard? Are you failing miserably? Are you trusting in a lot of other things rather than simply trusting in Jesus. Thanks, Susie. You know, as we close here this morning, I said God supplements our humanity with his divinity. Maybe you've not really been allowing the divine, God himself, the Holy Spirit, to live his life fully in your life or through your life to other people. What does that look like? It might mean you're, you see a lot of argumentativeness in you, a lot of hardness in your relationships with other people, you're kind of grumpy and hard to get along with a lot, not occasionally, a lot. You know, I simply want to invite you to recognize that the same God who raised Jesus from the dead, lives his life in you. And all you need to do is really shift from living in your own resources to allow him to be in you all that he wants to be. You simply do that with a little act of repentance. Lord, I wanna change how I think about you living your life in me. To shift one other way Maybe there are people that have offended you and you've not really dealt with it. You're hoarding grace, as it were. You're withholding unforgiveness. Maybe it's time that you simply go and go quickly. Go gently and with humility. 
considering your log as you deal with their speck. Allow Jesus to show himself strong on your behalf. We're so glad you've been with us this morning and we trust that God will show himself faithful to each one of us throughout this next week. Susie, thank you for coming and leading us in worship today. Pray with me and at the bottom of the screen you'll find a number if you'd like to call for a special prayer. We'd be glad to pray with you and walk with you and serve you in any way that we can. Father, thank you for giving us this day. We declare that you are good. We declare that you are faithful, that your grace is sufficient, that your love is enormous, that you have linked us to eternity and you've made us normal by virtue of coming and living your life in us. Would you bless your people, your families, members of Saltbox and their friends, some who have joined us today. And Lord, we'll be careful to give you alone the praise and the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.